If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 this morning. Friends, this is one of my all-time favorite chapters, not just in the book of Genesis, but in our entire Bibles. And I have praying, I've been praying all week long that God would use this text and this sermon to increase our affections for Jesus this morning and to increase our anticipation of how he wants to be in a relationship with us and to work meaningfully and powerfully in our lives. Let's begin this morning by reading Genesis chapter 32 together. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahaniam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their cows, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face 
perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I love being a dad. I have four wonderful kids, and there are a few things better in life than being their father. I mean, who wouldn't want to have a group of people who are supposed to obey your every command? It's a great situation. Having a bunch of minions, I mean children, is an awesome thing. Hey, Angie, can you go upstairs and get my phone charger? Hey, Nathan, can you fill up my water bottle? Hey, William, can you mow the lawn? Hey, Allie, can you do the dishes for me? It's, it's gotten even better in recent days with technology. I don't even need to say anything. I just send them a text and ask them to do me favors. Seriously, if you have lazy tendencies like I do, having a few children is a great solution. They get the job done. And you only need to feed them occasionally. Obviously, I'm joking. Right, kids? Maybe. <laughs> Being a dad is so much more than having little people who get the household chores done for you, right? To, to choose to have kids only to have them do things for you would be a terrible reason to have kids. A, a parent who only wants to, to use their children to their own advantage is not a very good parent at all. Parenting is about so much more than just getting your children to obey you. A parent who doesn't long for and celebrate a, a growing relationship with their child is a terrible parent. A, a parent who doesn't want their child to, to grow into maturity and to learn how to, how to think for themselves, that's a weak-minded parent. Be, being a dad is so much more than just having people who obey you. No, it's about relationships. It's about partnership. It's about becoming better and better friends the older you get and learning how to live fruitful lives together. At least that's what parenting should be. Church, what has God saved you for? Has God saved you just to be his minions, to be his slaves? Is, is that why you exist today? 
Does God just have a lot of chores that need to be done? And so he created humanity in order to assist him in the work. Or, or does God, like the loving father that he is, want to be in a relationship with you? Does he want you to grow and to learn how to think bigger thoughts and to partner with him in the good work that he is doing in your life and in the world all around you? Friends, I love Genesis 32 so much because this chapter gives us a very healthy picture of what it means to be in relationship with our God. The the picture that we see here of Jacob is, is not one of a weak slave or minion just doing what he is told to do. No, what we see here is a child of our heavenly father who has grown very confident in his relationship with God himself. We see in the text today that, that Jacob strove with God. That, that word strive, that means to, to make an effort to achieve or to obtain something. And now, that, that might sound very legalistic to our, our Christian grace-oriented minds, right? As, as Christians, we don't like language that involves our efforts. We like to rely wholly on God's grace. But what we see throughout this text is that to to strive with God is to be in a healthy relationship with him. God is actually eager for us to strive with him, even to wrestle with him, to cling to him in relationship and in dependency. Why is he eager for this? Because he wants to profoundly bless his people as we cling to him by faith. And he wants to prosper our relationship with him as we wrestle with him and hold on tightly to him. Friends, our main idea for our message here this morning is simply this. God wants to bless us through our striving with him. God wants to bless us through our striving with him. Now, what does it mean to strive with God. How are we supposed to strive with God, particularly in a grace and gospel-centered way? We have three points this morning. Point number one, remember what God has done. Point number two, be changed by what God has done. And point number three, pray boldly for God to do more. Remember what he has done, be changed by what he has done, and pray boldly for him to do more. Let's begin with the first point, number one, remember what God has done. Folks, we need to consider the context of this story. If you remember, Jacob has has just escaped from the manipulative ways of his uncle Laban. He's just left him behind, and he is now following the Lord's direction to return to the land of his fathers. He's, He's returning to the land of Canaan. The only problem is that to return to the land of his father Isaac is to also return to the land of his angry brother Esau. And if you remember from, from chapters 25 to 27, Jacob, whose, whose name literally means deceiver or underhanded way or one, was, was very cruel to his older brother Esau. And so in the same way that, that Laban mistreated and cheated Jacob, Jacob mistreated and cheated Esau. He, he had manipulated the birthright from Esau for a single bowl of stew. He, he had dressed up his, in his brother's clothes and, and put skin, sheepskins on his hands in order to steal the blessing from his blind father. 
Jacob had sinned in great ways against his brother Esau, and Esau wanted revenge. Right at the end of chapter 27, we read Esau's words, I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau is set on murdering his younger brother because of what he's done. Folks, this is the context. Jacob is now returning to Canaan after 20 long years of being away, and he is now wondering what in the world is Esau going to think. Is Esau still angry? Is Esau still bent on vengeance? Will Jacob's life and the lives of his family members be in danger? What is going to happen? And in verses 3 to 8, it seems like these fears are are well-grounded. They're warranted fears because Jacob sends his servants ahead to tell Esau that he is coming. And they return only to say that, yeah, Esau is now headed towards you, Jacob, and he has 400 men with him. That, that, that is intimidation. I find it somewhat amusing. It's like the older brother flexing his muscles and saying, I'm about to beat you. you, you it's coming. I'm heading your way. It's a, a major scare tactic. It's likely indicating that war is, is, is on the way between them both. Folks, fear is the context for this passage. I wonder what you are fearful of this morning. What fears do you carry with you on a daily basis? Is it fear of your past sins coming back to haunt you today? Is it fear of somehow losing everything you have? Maybe this week you heard about layoffs in your company and you are are fearful that they might include you in those layoffs. Maybe you have fear that your health is going to decline. Maybe you have fears about growing old and whether your family will forget you. Maybe you have fear about COVID-19 coming back. I don't know. Church, we all have fears. But what does it mean to to strive with God in the midst of our fears? What does it mean to strive, to to cling to, uh, to appropriately wrestle with God in the midst of fearful seasons and situations in life? That's really the question that this passage poses for us today. What does it mean to strive with God in the context of great fear and uncertainty? uncertainty about the future. Well, friends, first of all, it means that we must remember what God has done for us. Look look at verse 1. It says that Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. That seemingly short and almost throwaway phrase, it seems, is actually really, really significant. The angels of God met him. Angels are are messengers of God. Angels throughout our Bibles often meet with God's people at the beginning and end of a significant moment or event. And so when we read in such a a matter-of-fact way that these angels of God appeared to Jacob, we're supposed to notice that this is a significant transition point. This is spoken of in in such a matter-of-fact way because we're supposed to remember Genesis chapter 28 and, and still have that in our minds. If you remember back in chapter 28, when Jacob was was leaving the land of Canaan for the first time, he had a dream, and and in that dream, there were angels ascending and descending on a ladder. That, That moment with those angels commemorated Jacob's departure from Canaan, and it commemorated God's commitment to bless him in the future. And so now... Now, as as Jacob prepares to enter back into the, the borders of Canaan, the angels appear to him again. Why? To to remind him that the last 20 years have not been wasted. 
The last 20 years have not been for nothing. No, no, these angels meet Jacob upon his return as a way to highlight what God has done in Jacob's life over this time. And Jacob knows that God is present. Verse 2, he says, this is God's camp. He is very aware of God's presence and God's favor and God's preserving grace on his life and on his journey thus far. Look, Look down in verse 10. Jacob prays a beautiful prayer of humility. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan 20 years ago, and now I have become two camps as I return. Jacob knows that he left Canaan with nothing, and now he is returning a very wealthy and powerful man. Why? Because God has done this work. God has been faithful to his word and to his promises. Friends, in the midst of our many fears, it is very important that like Jacob, we remember what God has done for us. It's important in the Christian life to have a a reflex to look back and to recall what God has done. Listen, if your marriage is on the rocks, if your marriage is in a difficult place and you are fearful about what the future will be, it's important to look back and remember how God brought that marriage about in the first place and how he has preserved it thus far. And it can give you strength and courage and patience and humility to continue on. If you're in a difficult financial situation and you're unsure as to what the next week might bring, one of the best ways to not be controlled by fear is to remember how God has provided for you in the past and to consider again how he can and will provide for you in the future. If you're just entering into a new season of life, a new vocation or a new venture, and you're fearful about what that new season will look like, it's important to remember that it's not the first new season of your life. No, God has carried you through many new seasons, many new ventures, and he will do the same again. Friends, most of all this morning, as we wrestle with all kinds of fears in this life, we need to remember what God has done for us in and through the gospel. The appearance of these angels was a reminder to Jacob of what God had done. But friends, if like Jacob you are fearful about what the future will be or how God will provide for you or protect you, you have something even greater than those angels. You might not have them appear to you in the same way, but you can remember the cross and you can remember the empty grave and you can remember that death itself has been swallowed up by God's victory over the grave. He's defeated sin and death on your behalf. Your greatest problems have been taken care of. Amen. Church, even as we, as we learn about what it is to strive with God, to wrestle with God in this text, we must remember that there is one who wrestled with God perfectly and who wrestled with the weight of God's wrath against our sin on the cross, and he was victorious. And so we can have courage in the midst of our fears because though we, like Jacob, were not worthy of this steadfast love, God has proven that love over and over and over again, ultimately at the cross and in countless other ways as well. To remember this is to give us courage. It is to give us hope. It is to give us confidence in the midst of our fears. Our God is for us. Part of striving with God is calling these things to mind. This is part of what it means to be a Christian, to grow in grace, is to have a really good memory in the midst of a chaotic world and life. God wants us to remember. Church, this is why we gather on Sunday mornings. 
Because we need to remember together who God is and what he has done. This is why it's important to attend church, not just once every couple of months, but to attend regularly so that you can stand with other Christians who are dealing with many fears themselves and hear their voices call out and proclaim the faithfulness of God as well. This is why we need fellowship group. This is why we need to be in the word. This is why we need prayer. As we remember what God has done, friends, we're actually going to be changed even more by what God has done. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, be changed by what God has done. What does it mean to strive with God? Well, it means that you seek to always remember what he has done in the gospel. But as we see in this text, it also means that you seek to be changed by what he has already accomplished. Church, think about the the transformation of Jacob in this text. It's extraordinary. Jacob left his homeland back in chapter 28, and he left as a broken man, a broken man. His own pride and foolishness, his immense sinfulness had broken his family apart, and now he was needing to to flee for his life. Folks, this wasn't just because he had made a few small mistakes. No, it was because he was a great sinner. And his practice of sinning and deceiving had left him with nothing but the staff in his hand. Jacob had a long history of sin. Patterns of sins, besetting practices of sin had plagued him. And it appeared, at least in chapter 28, that the entirety of his life, that the rest of his existence was going to be marked by the fallout from his sinful mistakes. Church, I wonder if you are plagued by your own sinfulness as well. I wonder if you see patterns of sin in your life that that haunt you on a daily basis. Is it pride? Is it anger? Is it substance abuse or addiction? I wonder if you have, have made the same mistake a thousand times over in your life and if you wonder if you can ever truly change in that area. Listen, I am am confident that Jacob left Canaan back in chapter 28 thoroughly condemned by his sin and unsure whether his life would ever be different than it was in that moment. He he was asking the questions, can I ever fix these problems? Can my family ever really get back together? Could could I ever get my life back in order or my feet back under me? Those were the questions that he was asking in that moment. But, But church, That is emphatically not the picture of Jacob that we see here in chapter 32, right? Jacob is a different man here. Change has happened in his life. God has changed him. In, In chapter 28, Jacob met with God. God appeared to him in a dream, and despite his incredible baggage, despite his many sins, God promised to be with him, and Jacob believed God. Jacob had a conversion experience in chapter 28. He he changed from the inside out. God God appeared to Jacob and told him that the sum of his life was not based on his own performance, but on God's amazing grace. How could God, the Holy One, covenant himself to a sinner like Jacob? Well, because this Holy One is the God of all grace. And he loves to do great things for those who can do nothing for themselves. It was God's initiative. 
God came to Jacob. God chose Jacob by his grace. God saved Jacob. It was entirely God's doing. And Jacob was just the recipient of it in that moment. He was saved. He was given the gift of salvation. But friends, the story doesn't end there. He wasn't just saved positionally from his sins before God. He wasn't just forgiven. No, he was actually, he actually began a process by God's grace of being changed in, in practical ways before God and in this life. And we know that he was changed because the Jacob we see in this story is an entirely different man than who we saw in chapter 28. Throughout this chapter, when, when Jacob talks about himself in relation to his brother. Did you notice how he calls himself servant? And he, he calls Esau Lord or, or master? It's remarkable humility that would never have been there in Jacob's life before. In verses 9 to 13, we see a prayer that is marked by great humility. He, he acknowledges that the great things that have happened in his life are entirely of, of God's doing. We know that he's different because of how he relates to his brother as he moves forward. He, he not only calls him Lord in humility, but he sends him gifts, lots of gifts. Did you see all the animals that he sent ahead? It's almost like Jacob has responded to the inheritance that he has stolen and is almost giving it back with great generosity back to Esau. He's seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. He's no longer manipulating and conniving. This is not the same person that Jacob was before. This is now who he is, though, because he has allowed the promises and the faithfulness of God to transform who he is. He's gradually learned from his mistakes. He's been transformed by God's grace. Christian, listen. The same is true for us in the gospel. We do not change ourselves. God changes us. He comes to us. He initiates. He saves us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And once he has saved us positionally, he then transforms us and sanctifies us practically. That's what the gospel does. It changes who we are in real ways. And this is where true transformation comes from, from grace alone. The gospel is not a self-help program. This is God's rescue mission in every area of your life. He, he desires not only to, to save you from your sins for all eternity, but also to transform you in the details. He wants to make you holy, and he does that not just by telling us to work harder, but by reminding us of the great work that he has done through his son Christ, and then by allowing our hearts to celebrate that through our active obedience and devotion back to him. Christian, listen. Non-Christian, if you, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've never bent your knee before him as Lord, listen, change is possible in your life. Change is possible for you today. It, it's not possible in your own strength. No, if you, if you try to change in your own strength, you will fall into the same sins again and again and again. But change is possible when you consider what God has done for you through his son, Jesus. He sent his son to die in your place to forgive you of your many sins so that you no longer have to live under the weight of those sins so that you can be free from the condemnation of those sins. How, how does that freedom come about? Well, it happens by remembering what God has done, acknowledging what, what you have done before God and allowing the grace and the forgiveness of God 
to change you. Friends, notice in this next section when when Jacob wrestles with God. Before God blesses Jacob, God asks Jacob to say his name. What is your name? Jacob has to say to God, my name is Jacob. We know his name literally means deceiver. So as he says his name, he's basically saying, I am a deceiver. He's humbly acknowledging who he is before God, and it is then that God blesses him. Friends, this is part of what it means to be changed by God and to receive his blessings in life. You need to acknowledge your need before God in humility. You don't don't hide your sin from him. You you acknowledge it. You, You confess it. You bring it before the Lord. Friends, you don't polish yourself up. You don't need to find a different name to describe yourself. No, you can come as you are this morning and experience the grace of forgiveness. God says to you this morning, what is your name, friend? What is your name? And you don't need to hide. You don't need to say a different name. You can say, my my name is the deceiving one. Or you can say, my name is, is a proud and angry father, and I need help. Or you can say, my, my name is a lustful woman who can't conquer her addiction to pornography. Or, or my name is addict, and I need Jesus' help to break the bonds of slavery. Or my name is angry teenager, and I am crushing my family under my sinful attitudes. Or my name is gossiper and slanderer, and I need Jesus to change me. You say your name before him this morning. You confess your sin, and then you allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from that sin, and for Jesus to rename you, even as he does for Jacob, calling him Israel, the one who strives with God. When when you realize When you realize all that you are has been forgiven, your life will be lived in worship to God. So friends, don't don't hesitate this morning. Don't wait. Don't hide your sin any longer. Take time this week to consider your long history of sin and once again, confess it to the Lord. Confess it to your spouse. Confess it to your fellowship group. Confess it to one of the pastors. You have an opportunity. Say your name before the Lord and allow God to have victory over it again in your life. We strive with God by remembering what he has done, and by being changed by what he has done. And that requires great humility. And finally, we strive with God by praying boldly for God to do more. What has God saved you for? Has he saved you just to be his little minions, his his slaves who can do household chores for you? No. He has saved you for relationship. And as we have seen so far, that relationship is brought about by remembering what he has done and by allowing ourselves to be changed by what he has done. But friends, there's more. There's more good news. Our Father so wants us to have a rich relationship with him that he invites us to strive with him, not just in the moment of conversion and in sanctification, but to have ambition for what he can do in our lives, particularly in the areas of great fear and trouble. Friends, I can't think of a better picture of this than how this chapter ends. In verses 22 to 32, we read about Jacob wrestling with a man Throughout the night, a long time, hours on end, until the breaking of day. 
Now, this is a strange text. As you read commentaries on this section of Genesis, what you read repeatedly is that what exactly happens here is shrouded in mystery. It's basically the commentator's way of saying, I don't have a clue. No one knows exactly what is going on here. But friends, I do think that we can understand that the main point of this by considering what clearly is evident in this text. First of all, we know the context for this wrestling. Jacob is fearful. He's about to meet his brother Esau and 400 men with him. It seems like Jacob is desperate for God's help because it seems like war is about to go down. He needs God's help to work powerfully in his life, to preserve his life, to provide for him in this moment. This is an opportunity in the context for prayer. Second of all, we know that Jacob is left alone, right? In verses 23, verse 23 to 24, he sends his family ahead, and then it says in verse 24 that he was left alone. And we know that solitude is often where God meets his people in the the practice and discipline of prayer. Even Jesus himself found solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestled with his heavenly Father in prayer as he looked ahead to the cross. Third, we know that Jacob wrestled with God himself. So, some people argue that this was just an angel of God, but I don't think so. When, when, when we see that this person did not give Jacob his name, which God does not always disclose his name, is holy. When we see the power of this individual that he wrestled with and that he just touched Jacob's hip and it was dislocated. And then when we see in verse 30 that, that Jacob says that he has seen God face to face and yet his life was delivered, it seems very clear. Jacob wrestled with God himself in physical form. Again, in Hosea chapter 12, it says that Jacob specifically wrestled with God himself. Fourth, we know that God did not have to wrestle Jacob here. It's not like God was walking by and then suddenly got caught in this tussle and, and could not get away. Look, look at verse 25 again. It says that he, he touched his hip socket and dislocated his hip with, with just a touch. God, God could have ended this tussle at any time at all. He didn't have to allow it to go through the night. Fifth, we know that Jacob was never the same after this. He walked with a limp. The effect of this wrestling with God changed him even further than he had already been changed. And then finally, six, we know that church history has consistently interpreted this passage as being about prayer. And we know of other passages that seem to speak of, of prayer in a similar way. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul speaking about struggling in his prayers for the Colossian church. Friends, this picture of Jacob wrestling with God seems to be a picture of it seems to be an invitation for the people of God to wrestle with God in prayer. It's a picture of what it means to commune with, to fellowship with, to strive with God himself. Consider our fourth observation again. God did not have to wrestle with Jacob. He could have ended this at any time, but he let it go through the whole night. Friends, consider how, how physical wrestling is, how intimate it is. How it's two-sided, how you must do it with someone else. You can't just wrestle yourself. Church, what a picture of how God wants us to strive with him in dependent prayer. How he wants us to pray to him. How when we are in fearful moments in life or troubled situations in life, which, let's be honest, is all the time. How he wants us to find solitude and to pray to him. 
to cling to him, to ask him boldly for his help and for his provision. He, he wants to be accessible to us. Hebrews chapter 4 says that because of Christ, we can enter boldly into the throne room and ask for grace and mercy to help in time of need. We could have added a seventh point about this, being about prayer, by looking ahead into the next chapter. Because when we look ahead next week, we will see that God seems to have answered Jacob's prayer. According to the first verses in this chapter, it seems like Esau is, is bent on vengeance, bent on war. But when we get into chapter 33, everything changes and reconciliation is brought about. This is miraculous. This is a picture of how God wants us, invites us to wrestle with him in prayer and how he wants to respond by meeting our request, by answering our call, and by, by working miraculously in our lives. Friends, this is not just for Jacob. He names Jacob Israel, which becomes the name of all of God's people. This is an invitation for all of us. He has not saved you to be minions or slaves. He has saved you to be in relationship with him and to partner with him in the work that he is doing in your life and in the world around you and through the local church. Oh, there's an opportunity for all of God's people here. An opportunity to become in greater ways a people of prayer, to remember all that he has done and to believe that as we wrestle with him by faith that he wants to do so much more for us. Christian, how is your prayer life? Is your relationship with God marked by a lot of do's and don'ts, by a lot of, of rules, or is your relationship one that is marked by communion and by fellowship and with this Godward sword of wrestling with your creator? Think about what it is to wrestle all night long. It is a long and tiring thing, and so, so it is with prayer. But it is a rewarding thing because God, your Lord, your creator, invites you to do it, invites you to hold on tightly, invites you to ask boldly, and he is eager to provide for you in that need. Oh, that we would wrestle with God like Jacob. Oh, that Redeemer Fellowship would be, maybe more than anything else, a praying church. Because as we pray, God's Spirit will help us to delight in Christ. And as we pray, God's Spirit will help us to love one another well, even when it becomes difficult. And when we pray, God will enable us to, to serve our community and to proclaim the gospel diligently. Why? Because he desires to richly give us all that we need and to, to allow us to grow up into a relationship with him in which we partner with him and work boldly for his glory and for the good of his people. May we be a praying church. Friends, our God is not interested in minions and slaves. He's interested in men and women who are so astonished by his goodness and grace that they are filled with love and affection and devotion and deep prayerfulness back towards him.